Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. It's typical for the Apostle Paul to lay down a doctrinal foundation in his letters and then uh, go on to practical conduct or daily conduct after that. You see that in his, his letters, as you know, like in Ephesians or Romans and other books. And he follows the same pattern here in Colossians. Uh, in dealing with the uh, false philosophy confronting the believers in Colossae, uh, Paul writes concerning the person and work of Christ. And uh, as you have seen already and will continue to see, for Christ, or for Paul rather, Christ was his all in all. And hopefully that's true of all of us as well, or we'll come to that point at least. Now in in chapter 3 and verse 5, through the end of the letter, he exhorts us to apply the theology he's already taught us to our lives. Kent Hughes, a uh, pastor, says this about this. He says, For Paul, doctrine demands duty, creed determines conduct, and facts demand acts. So the conduct follows on the heels of the theology, as we've heard oftentimes in Paul's letters. Tonight we're going to examine three commands that will bring our conduct in line with our position in Christ. Three commands that will bring our conduct in line with our position in Christ. And in some ways, I think I'm probably going to raise more questions than I answer, but that's okay. It'll drive us to study study our Bibles more. And that's not a bad thing. First of all, and these are three commands, by the way. First of all, Paul says, put to death the use of your body for immoral purposes. And by the way, so I won't be accused of lying, according to verse 9. I'm going to give credit for the outline basically, to Murray J. Harris, a really good scholar. He says, first of all, put to death the use of your body for immoral purposes. That's found in verses 5 to 7. He says in verses 5, let's read the whole chapter, the whole section 5 to 11 tonight. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. First of all, verses 5 to 7, he says, put to death the use of your body for immoral purposes. You'll notice there in verse 5 the word therefore, as Paul often uses. He's drawing upon what was previously written. In chapter 2, verse 20, we're informed that we have died with Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, we're informed there by Paul that we have been raised with Christ. We're told in the first couple of verses of chapter 3 to focus our attention on the things above, not on things on the earth. We're to seek the things that are above. We're to set our affections on the things that are above, set our minds on the things above, where Christ is, in in essence, set our minds on Christ. We've been identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. That is our position in Christ, and that's important. That is our position in Christ, identify with him in his death and resurrection. So in light of our understanding of these truths, something must be done. And he tells us we're to put to death sin in our lives, basically. We must have a life that conforms to the truth of our position in Christ. We are in Christ, therefore we're to live a certain way. We're to live a holy life. We should become in practice what we are in position. 
We must become what we actually are. We're in Christ, therefore we're to live that way. Paul is saying, since you've died with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ, therefore you need to live that way. Now the NASB in verse 5 tells, the New American Standard tells us to consider the members of our earthly body as dead to sin, as dead to immorality and purity and so on. It's actually a much stronger statement than that. One of the things I do like about the NASB translation is that in the side column, as I've said many times to you, or in the middle column of your NASB Bible, it should have a literal translation. And it gives, that's a very helpful thing. You ought to use that, that feature of your Bible to help you understand better. Oftentimes, translators will translate a verse in the English to try to, to get you to understand something. But sometimes it comes out not exactly like they intended it to. And, and here, it's, it's good to look at that, that literal rendering. And if you'll see that in your, in your NASB Bible, it says, literally it says this, Therefore put to death the members, the ones upon the earth. It's a command. He says put to death, not so much a consideration of things or thinking about things or a contemplation of that as it is actually a command. He says put to death your members which are upon the earth. Or if you prefer, put your sin to death or kill your sin. Kill it until it's dead. Now let me ask you a question. And this is an imperfect illustration. It's going to break down as most, most illustrations will in this in this, these kind of analogies, so don't take this perfectly. But what would you do if you encountered a poisonous snake in your yard? You, a, a, a rattlesnake, we'll say. The, the great fear of all Floridians, the rattlesnake in the yard, right? Would you say, well, you know, there's a, now there are people who are snake people who would, who would love to have that situation, by the way. I, I realize that. But would you tame, seek to tame that rattlesnake, knowing it could kill you, would you seek to train the snake to become mild and gentle and kind and of a good temperament? Would you allow the, the snake to live in your yard while your children played back there? Well, in my opinion, there's only one remedy for that situation, and that is kill the snake until it's dead. That's what I would do. I would do what I've done with snakes in the past, go get my shovel, go back there and chop its head off. And that's what I've done because I have the same philosophy. My good friend, Kent Sager, who is in New York City now, but he grew up here, and he had the philosophy that the only good snake was a dead snake, a philosophy I shared with Kent, by the way. I understand all those rat, rat snakes and the, all that that kill rats and so on. I get all that. But nevertheless, he had this attitude. And I tell you, one time I was following Kent through the woods. He was in his car ahead of me. Uh, he was on a road that was going through woods. I was in, in the car in back of him a little bit of a distance, and I noticed that when I got up uh, closer... I saw a rattlesnake or a snake at the time. I didn't pay attention to what it was crossing the road. <clears throat> Ken had gone by it. He suddenly put on his brakes, <laughs> did a quick U-turn, came back, ran over the snake, put on the brakes when he ran over the snake and turned the wheels and killed the snake dead. Now that attitude that my friend had towards killing snakes is the same attitude that we should have toward killing the sin in our life. It's a serious matter. And it is a uh, grave matter, an urgent matter, and we should seek to kill sin in our life. It is, our sins should get the death penalty, in a word. Now, we know that our society is weak on criminal justice, right? I think we're all aware of that. Criminals get away with a lot. They're lawyers, and they themselves learn to play the system after a while, and they get by with a lot of things. They're in and out of jail, and when they get out of jail, a lot of times they cause pain for others, hurt people even, even kill people during their time out of jail. 
And so we know we have this we have this weak system oftentimes. I believe that people who who are committing horrible heinous acts against humanity should get the death penalty if they do those types of things. Somebody says, and as soon as you say that, somebody says, oh, that won't deter crime if you give them the death penalty. But I'll tell you one thing, it'll deter the criminal who committed an act of murder, for example, if you put him to death. He won't do it again, will he? Because he's dead. And, you know, the same is true of sin. We're not supposed to tolerate sin or forget about sin or hope that it goes away somewhere. No, we're, we're supposed to kill it. And that's why we get into a mess. We tolerate our sin, don't we? We rationalize it. We, you know, we say, well, you know, God understands, but we don't kill it. And so we end up paying a price for it. <clears throat> John Owen, who was the, uh, many think, the greatest of all Puritans in his time in the 1600s, said this. He said, be killing sin. I like the way he said this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's very true. That is the solution to the sin problem, and it's something that we're commanded to do once again. It's not complicated. He says to kill sin. The problem lies with our obedience to the command. We don't obey the command. Now, understand this. The killing of sin is a regular occurrence in your life. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's today. Maybe you have gained victory today over sin. Tomorrow is a new day, and you'll have to deal with it again. Killing sin, though, is a way of life. Now, the, the way Paul phrases this in verse 5 is unique. He says, put to death the members of your earthly body, or as I said, earthly, or I said earlier, put to death the members, the ones upon the earth. The earthly members, because they are earthly members of our bodies, why we need to have the heavenly focus of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The earthly focus is a natural one. It's natural for us to focus on the things of the earth. But the supernatural focus is toward heaven. That's why he says that in verses 1 and 2. What does he mean by members when he, says, when he says that? Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sin, or put them to death, rather. Some have actually thought that Paul is addressing church members here. One person said that it would be like Paul saying this, members of, because 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the members of Christ's body. He said, members of Christ's body, put to death sin in your life. That's not exactly what I think the tra- it was the meaning there. Uh, the, member, the word members is normally used to describe the parts of the human body in the scripture. For example, <clears throat> James 3.5 says this, So the tongue is a small part or member, same words here in Colossians, Colossians <clears throat> 3, the tongue is a small member of the body, describing a part of the body there. So I believe that Paul's identifying parts of the human body in association with the list of the following sins, and that is a figure of speech called a metonymy. Sorry, uh, Megan, for bringing up English here. Uh, you can correct me later. Metonymy is the use of, uh, of the name of one object for that of another to which it is related. It's substituting uh, one word for another, in effect. It's, it's used in Numbers 3.16, for example. The Lord told Moses to number the tribe of Israel, or tribe of Levi, rather. And it says there, so Moses, it says literally there, Moses numbered them according to the mouth of the Lord. The mouth of the Lord. But the NASB says, Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord. Well, they say that because the word of the Lord came out of the mouth of the Lord, using two different words to describe the same thing. And I think that's what's happening here in Colossians 3.5. Now, why would Paul tell the Colossian believers to put to death their members and then list certain sins such as immorality? It's because our bodies are the instruments used in the committing of sin. They're... 
our bodies are, are using the committing of sin. So we're not only dealing with sin itself as some abstract thing, but the participant in sin in our human body. Now, understand this. Our bodies are not evil. They're not evil. They can be used for purposes of good or evil, but they're not evil in themselves. But it can be used for that purpose. Again, Romans 6 is a good parallel passage. We've talked about that in, in past weeks. Romans 6, 12, and 13 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, <clears throat> so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, members being used for a good or bad purpose here. So when we deal with sin, we are dealing with our body, or including our mind, that can be used as instruments of righteousness or instruments of unrighteousness. And our bodies belong to God. We know that. They're to be used for his glory, for his purposes. We know, we know that. We understand that. And by the way, before we delve into this first list of vices, he gives in verse 5, and he gives us a couple of lists. Uh, that is this idea of putting sin to death, and it is a command to put it to death. It's also true that, and we were talking about this about a week ago, it's also true that we do this in the power of God. Understand that. You, you think of, I, I, when I saw this passage, I thought of, in connection with John Owen, I thought of Romans 8.13 immediately, which says, if by the Spirit, listen to this, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. Yes, we put to death the deeds of the body, but we do so by the Spirit, right? It's by the Spirit that this is accomplished. And you look in the, 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 the context of Colossians 2 and 3, and you'll see that this putting to death of sin in our life is because is, is, is caused by the fact that we are in Christ. We're in Christ. Colossians, Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says we're rooted firmly in Christ. We're being built up in Christ. Colossians 2, 10, we've been made complete in Christ. Colossians 2, 11, we've been circumcised spiritually in Christ. Colossians 3, 4, Christ is our life, and it goes on and on. So our obedience to the command is grounded in the person and work of Christ. It's not something that we just we do on our own. We're doing this because, yes, we're commanded. We do it by the Spirit, right? We do it in his strength. Now look at the list of vices in verse 5, uh, these sins of immorality. He starts with outward expressions of sin, and then he moves on to the inward longings for sin. By the way, if you want to get her, get her a good sermon on this, listen to Ryan's sermon on Colossians 3, 5 to 11, uh, as he preached a few years ago. Uh, first of all, he starts with immorality. Put to death the members of your earthly body, such as immorality. Put it to death. That comes from the word porneia. You can imagine what that word is, right? We get our word pornography from that. So put to death immorality. It describes every type of unlawful sin outside of marriage. It doesn't matter what kind of sin it is. Uh, immorally, any kind of deviant behavior outside of marriage is included in the word. All kinds of things like that are included in that word. He says, put all that to death. Hebrews 13:5, marriage is honorable among all in the bed undefiled. Uh, but it says that fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, the society of that day, they were permissive about these matters, just like our society is today. And Paul is often warning the churches about this in his letters, about their former behavior. In Galatians 5, Paul mentions the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about immorality 
listed as among, among the deeds of the flesh and things of that nature. In Ephesians 5.3, we're warned not to let immorality, even it says, don't even let it be named among you as is proper among saints. People say oftentimes, I wonder what the will of God is for my life. Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, it gives us a definite statement concerning that, among other things, it says this, for this is the will of God, very plain, right? Your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's very clear. That's the will of God. And this is the first in the list of vices that Paul says we are to put to death, immorality. He continues, he says, also impurity in verse 5. This is often paired with immorality in the New Testament. It's a work of the flesh, just like immorality. It's incompatible with life in the spirit. It's moral uncleanness. Almost, it's almost synonymous with the first term, uh, immorality. And it, it's used to describe the intent, the immoral intent of an action as well as the, the immoral conduct of an action. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, 8 comments on this type thing. It says, for God has called us, has, rather God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. We're not called for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And then it goes on to say in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he who rejects this, God's talking about here, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so God says, put to death, not only immorality, but also impurity. Then he says, put to death passion, in verse 5. This word was used by some of my favorite guys in history, the Stoics, to describe those who were controlled by their emotions. And we all know the Stoics were about one thing, not being controlled by their emotions, right? It's an emotionally charged word, passion. Paul uses it in the sense of shameful passions that lead to immorality. He says again in 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 and 5, Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, he says. Same word. Like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, don't be like unsaved people who don't know God. That's how they live. And if you'll look at Romans 4, don't, you don't have to turn there, but Romans 4 has the same idea. Shameful passions also involved in, in God's judgment on the wicked there. Romans 126 says, For this reason God gave these people who were debasing uh, living a debasing lifestyle, God gave them over to degrading passions. Same word there. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. <clears throat> so it can apply to any of these evil acts. And so God says, kill immoral, shameful passions. Then he says, put to death evil desire in verse 5. Evil desire. It, it, the word desire, if used by itself, can be a good desire or it can be an evil desire used by itself. For example... In 1 Thessalonians 2, it says Paul had, using this, just the word desire, Paul had a great desire to see the Thessalonian believers. He wanted to visit them. Philippians 1.23, it says Paul had a desire, another great desire, to, be, to depart this life and to be with Christ, he said, which is far better. But he chose to stay here because he had a work to do here. But the desire here in Colossians 3 is connected with the word evil, with the word evil so it's an evil desire. It's got this negative connotation. And what's happening here is God is forbidding us from doing something that is, well, it's, it's forbidden. It's a forbidden activity. It's crossing the line. It's pursuing self-gratification, and God forbids that. The same word is used in Galatians 5.16, where it says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the evil desires of the flesh. 
So God has drawn strict guidelines in this area, right? And he's forbidden, forbidden us from crossing that line. So he says, put to death immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And he talks about greed. Put to death greed, which he says, and he adds a comment here to this, which amounts to idolatry. Greed is a desire to have more, being covetousness, or being covetous. Some think that's a good thing, by the way. And I've told you before, back in the 80s and into the 90s, I think, there was a slogan where people were saying, greed is good. It's a good thing. And I told you about the guy in my workplace that had the bumper sticker on the front of his car that said, greed is good. And he would talk about it. I'm greedy. <laughs> he wanted more money. That was his goal in life. But the Bible looks upon it as anything but good. You know, you can be greedy for anything, for money, material possessions. It doesn't matter what it is. But I think in the context here, he's probably talking about a desire for more illegitimate immorality, greedy for that. And he goes on to say, this greed is nothing more than idolatry. It's the worship of self-gratification. You hear the word idolatry thrown around by everybody nowadays, but here's a, here we pin it down in a verse that says, this, idol, this business of greed here is the worship of self-gratification. It's, by the way, greed and covetousness are linked together also in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. In Ephesians 5, 3, Paul said that immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among saints. We said that already. He goes on in verse 5 says this, to say this, for this you know with certainty, there's no doubt about it, that immoral or impure, an immoral or impure person or a covetous man who is an idolater, says it again, a covetous man who is an idolater, he doesn't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Why is that? Because it's his idol, right? He's, covetousness becomes the most important thing in, in your life, and you worship that. It's greater than it takes the place of God in your life. It's it's uh, greed takes the place of God in your life. It's something you want more than God. And so that it is idolatry in that sense. So how do we deal with these sins of immorality that he talks about here in this list? These five things that he lists. Well, I'll tell you how not to deal with it uh, and how the Colossian heretics dealt with it. It won't be through the practices of the, of the philosophers in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2. It won't be by obeying a, system, uh, a set of legalistic rules we set down legalistic rules for everybody to follow, and then we're okay. That's not how it's done. It won't be through seeking mystical experiences, Colossians 2 again. That's not going to deliver us from sin. It's not going to be by treating our body severely, by being an ascetic, as we talked about in Colossians 2. None of that. Look at Colossians 2.23. He says there, These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, they sound good, right? They sound religious, the things we just said. And self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of how much value? No value against <clears throat> fleshly indulgence. They don't stop the flesh. They don't put sin to death. They don't help spiritual growth. They do nothing at all, these things. Then what is the answer then? Colossians 3, 5, very simple. Put those things to death. Put sin to death in your life, he says. Kill it. Execute it. Slay it. Put it to death. And that's possible because of the work of salvation that Christ has wrought in our life. Now, he gives some reasons for this in verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> and there are two reasons that Paul gives for putting to death these sins. First of all, verse 6, these sins bring about God's judgment. They bring God's judgment. Verse 6, for it is because of these things, these things such as immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, greed, 
that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God is coming because of these things. And I think the first question to ask, answer here is, what, who are the sons of disobedience? The sons, it's just a Hebrew way of characterizing people. It, they throw that, they call it Semitism, they throw that title, sons of disobedience, on, or sons of uh, Belial, or Belial, you'll see in the Bible, or things of that nature. He's saying this, this these are a group of people who are characterized as being disobedient. They're rebels against God. They are, stand in opposition to God. They live a life of immorality. They live a life of greed and passion and, and evil desire. And they're greedy and they're idolaters. These people don't even know God. They're sons of disobedience. They live this way. This is how their, their lifestyle is. And so the wrath of God is coming upon them. These are the things, these sins, that attract the displeasure of God. This is why God is going to pour out his wrath on unbelieving people who have rebelled against him. People of the world will experience the wrath of God in its fullest measure. Now understand the people of God will not experience God's wrath, however, because we're in Christ, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation. We're not destined for wrath. But be warned of this. At the same time, we have a warning here of persistently of believers who would venture into this area of immorality. God's discipline will fall upon us, not God's wrath like upon the unsaved person, but nevertheless, God will discipline his children for sin. And Calvin said of these verses right here, he said, these words are spoken that we, the people of God, may be deterred from sinning. That we may be deterred or kept from sinning. It's a warning then. It serves as a warning to us about the fact that sin is serious. And this is a ser- these type of sins are, are of a serious nature. And God condemns them. There's a second reason given for putting these sins to death, and that's in verse 7. These are the sins that marked your past life, Paul says. He says, and in them, in these sins, you also once walked when you were living in them. The lives of the Colossian believers and, and of Gentiles in, in general in that day were marked by these kinds of sins before they came to Christ, before they knew Christ. Paul says, you used to live like this. You used to be immoral. You used to be impure. You used to uh, have evil desires and be greedy and so on. But he says, no more. That's over with. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in that t- at that time. Your life showed it. Think about this for a minute. If this type of behavior characterized their life without, without Christ, why should it now characterize their lives in Christ? It shouldn't, right? There should be a marked difference between those who don't know God and, and those who do. Totally different now. The sins that marked our past life should be put to death. They have no place in our life. So Paul says, put them to death. Don't use your body for the purposes of immorality. And then the second command he gives in verse 8, he says, put off sins of hatred. Put off sins of hatred. He says in verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. But now, he uses this contrast more than once in his letters, but now, in contrast to once in verse 7, at one time you lived and walked like this, but now everything's different, you're in Christ, and you're to live a different life. And what does he say? He says, you also put them all aside. He's changing gears now. And he gives us another list of vices, five again, that we're to put aside. 
We're to put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from our mouth. You know, is it possible for believers to participate in these types of sins? It is. Believers can participate in any type of sin. And that's why God says, put them to death, put them aside. And he picks up on the on these sins of hatred here in verse 8. First of all, he says anger. In this word, although there's disagreement over, some think that anger and wrath, are, there's not much of a difference at all in the two words. Others say this, and I'm going to tell you this, anger is a settled indignation in the heart. It's that smoldering resentment that <clears throat> is underneath the surface. It's, it's that seething type anger. You're not blowing up, but you're seething inside. You've known people like that, or you've been that way yourself? Seething. And you're just carrying this anger around in your heart. You're just mad and angry because something happened, and you're reacting to it. But you're not reacting in a violent way. You're just kind of carrying it underneath the surface. And then there's wrath. Wrath would be the outburst of anger. Someone just blows up. They lose it completely, and and I've seen that happen on the job. People just blow up. All of a sudden, it just comes out of like an eruption of a volcano. It just comes out. We would say about that person, he flew off the handle. And, the, you know, both these types of, of anger, uh, or both these types, anger or wrath, the smoldering, underlying anger, the sudden outbursts that just come out of nowhere, they don't characterize the people of God. They don't characterize us. That's not how we're to live. We're not to be that way. Uh, there, is a, there is a time and a place to be angry at evil and its effects. And that's a good thing. We're angry at evil and its effects. But he's talking about the wrong kind of, kind of anger here. kind of anger that God doesn't want us to have anything to do with at all. If it's not dealt with, eventually it's going to cause problems in your relationship with other people. Testimony is going to be marred by that. He talks about malice here. Malice is more of a general term. And it could range from things like trouble to uh, the idea of an attitude of wickedness. Probably here it's, it's thought that it's regarded as a deliberate intention to cause harm through some type of critical speech. Seeking to cause harm through critical speech. I was called in uh, the office the other day by way of where I work, and the manager said, I want to ask you something. Were you, did you see the incident that happened three weeks ago? Yes. Someone came to where I was working and screamed and yelled at another person and threatened them and cursed at them and threatened to beat them up and so on. Yes, I heard that. And she asked me to tell exactly what happened in that incident. I told her all I could remember. God doesn't want our... That's, that's, that person doesn't know God. But the people that do know God are not to be characterized that way. Called, you know, called before an office, a manager, and dealt with in that way. We're not, we're not to be that way. These three words, anger, wrath, and malice, together they express an attitude of ill will toward others, which can lead to destructive speech. You have this attitude that leads to destructive speech. You go after them because you're mad at the person. And you go after them and you say words to them that are unkind or evil or critical. As Christ said, the things that proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart, right? It's in there, welling up, and then you say things. And what would proceed out of the mouth? That would be the next two on the list, slander, and abusive speech. The word slander is, by the way, from the word blasphemy. Comes from the word blasphemy. We normally think of blasphemy as speech that defames the name of God, right? And that's true. It does defame the name of God, but it can be used also to defame other people with your speech. And James is exactly what James says in James 3:9. He says this: With the tongue, and this is after he says, "With our tongue we we praise God." 
But with the tongue we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. With our tongue we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. That's why we need to get our tongue under control. Some of you know my friend James, a new believer, has been coming here recently. And his roommate, not a believer, were going down, he was, they were going down the road one Sunday after work. He was bringing James here to church. And uh, somebody, you know, felt like they were cut off by this, these people, by my, my friends there. And they, uh, the guy proceeded to tell them off as they were driving down the road. You know how that goes on with the people that are driving down the road. Everybody, The drivers have to get mad at each other. It's just part of the society, right? That was going on. He was, they were hollering, not James, but the other guy was hollering back at him and <laughs> back and forth. Well, they went down the road, and the guy pulls off into a church this Sunday morning that was yelling at these guys. And my, my other friend, not James, yells to him, you hypocrite. <laughs> and the guy yells back, no, you're the hypocrite. You need to go to church more often. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of thing that we have to put away. We can't be cursing men who have been made in the likeness of God. This is a so-called believer saying all this. And James told me this, and I said, are you serious? And this is the kind of thing we've got to be careful to watch. Slander, abusive speech from our mouth, he says. Next, it's language that is dirty or obscene or filthy or shameful, probably used in connection with slander. Normally, it's coarse language used to defame another, per, per, uh, another person. You use coarse language to defame someone else. All these are sins of hatred, and they're to be put away. They're to be gotten rid of, he says. And then the third command, verse 9 through 11, put an end to lying. Third command in the passage. He says, do not lie. That's simple enough. Now, by the way, this is also a sin of speech. Could maybe group it under the other one. Previous to this, um, like I said, thank you, Murray J. Harris, for the outline. Put it into line. Third command. Well, we see that there's a command soon enough in the Bible given about lying, about not lying. Leviticus 19 says very plainly not to lie. You see it before that, even in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, you're not to bear false witness against your your neighbor, right? But we see lying taking place even in the church. In Acts 5, uh, um, uh, not Agrippa, uh, Ananias and Sapphira <coughs> were in the church, and they brought up some property that they had sold, and they said, you know, we sold it for so much, and, and they were lying, not only to the apostles, but they were lying to God also. They're lying to God and men here, and God put them to death for it. It's easy to lie, isn't it? Isn't it easy to lie to justify ourselves? Isn't it easy to lie on the job? It's a very easy place to lie. In fact, one of our members this week was asked by his boss to lie for the, for the boss. The person was asked to lie for the boss. And the person in our church, being the upstanding Grace Bible Church member that he is, did not comply with that wish. And I've been asked to lie on the job in past years. And I was not about to lie for the boss because they asked me to. But that happens in, in, in the workplace, happens elsewhere. And some people lie all the time. It doesn't even phase them. It doesn't even bother them at all. They can do it with a straight face. And right after they lie, they turn around and tell you something that told the opposite. It doesn't even, even, even notice that they did it. But believers can't lie to one another. They can't do that. He says, do not lie. How can we ever build a relationship of trust in the body of Christ if we're lying to each other? It's impossible. Speak truth, it says in Ephesians. So we're to put an end to lying. He gives us two reasons not to lie in verses 9 and 10. Number one, since you have laid aside the old self, verse 9. 
Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Laid aside, the same word used in 2.15 to describe um, Christ disarming the power of satanic host on the cross. The word means to strip off. He stripped satanic host of their power on the cross. And Paul exhorts us not to lie because we've already laid aside, stripped off that old self, just like we would take off old dirty clothes. We've put it aside. And the laying, this laying aside of the old self was done when we were identified with Christ in his death. So that being the case, we have no reason to lie. And so we have another reason. Since we put on the new self, we shouldn't lie. Verse 10. You put on the new self, <clears throat> who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the, the image of the one who created him. Put on the new self. This too happened our, at our salvation. Not only did we lay aside the old self through the power and work of Christ, but put on the new, new self just like we would put on new clothes. And so the basis for us to kill sins of immorality, to get rid of sins of hatred or lying, is our position in Christ. It's in Christ, right? There's no reason to lie. He says that this new self is being renewed. He talks about the new self. This new self is being renewed, it says in verse 10. Being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is the transformation that believers go through. It's an ongoing process. It'll go on until the day we get to glory, the day we die. The old self was dead, dead in trespasses and sins, but the new self is growing. It's alive in Christ. We're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll never arrive in this life, but we're constantly pressing forward. I press on, Paul said, toward the mark of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Though outwardly we are wasting away, Paul says, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We're being renewed day by day. And it's, we're being renewed to a true knowledge. That is the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ. Is what we're being re- that's the goal, to be renewed in the knowledge of God and of Christ. Why do you think we focus on things like systematic theology in this church? Why do you think Mike gives us time to teaching that? <clears throat> because we want people to, to know, to have a true knowledge of God, right? To focus in on God, on Christ, which is what Paul prayed for in Colossians 1.9, that people, the people at Colossae would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So we focus on the person of God, right? And the only source of this knowledge is the Word of God. We've got to go to the Word of God to find out what, what God wants of us. And that's how we get our minds renewed, by going to the Word of God and renewing them with the thoughts of God. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word that by it you may grow and respect the salvation. So we're to, be, to long for that Word so we might grow and we might be renewed in our hearts and minds. God wants us to be renewed he goes on to say, in accordance with the image of our Creator. God created us. We know that Christ was the Creator, according to Colossians 1.16. And so God is working in us to make us the new creation in Christ He wants us to be. Constantly working in us, bringing us to that point. Bringing us through this process of sanctification to be more and more like Him. So the new self is being renewed. And then this renewal shows no distinction. Verse 11, it's a renewal in which... <clears throat> There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. The renewal of our lives is true of all people that come to Christ, regardless of their racial background, regardless of their ethnic background, or their former lifestyle, or or anything. Whatever prejudice we had before the Lord saved us are to be put away. 
doesn't matter who the person is or what his background is. And it goes on to several different things it tells us about these people here. They could be Jews, or they could be Greeks, rather, it says in verse 11. Greeks, which was simply a Gentile of that day. Could be a Gentile, and the Jews didn't like Gentiles. Or it could have been a Jew, it says. And we know that the Gentiles didn't like Jews, and they're hated even to this day. They're hated by many people. He says they could be circumcised or uncircumcised, which is another way to say they could be Jew or Gentile. says it again. He says it doesn't matter what they're, if they're Jew or Gentile. They could be a barbarian. <laughs> a barbarian is a non-Greek, considered to be a, someone who's culturally inferior to others. He doesn't have the culture. He's kind of a barbarian. Well, he's a barbarian. That's, a, that's the word we use, right? Could be a Scythian, God forbid. It was a person living north of the, de- of the uh, Black Sea. I bet you didn't know that, did he? He lived north of the Black Sea. And he was an unrefined savage. He goes from bad to worse. Could be a barbarian, could be a savage like a Scythian. It's still, there's no distinction in Christ, right? Could be a slave. By the way, a slave was not considered a person but a piece of property in that day. Could be a freeman who was not a slave, just the opposite of a slave. Let me ask you this. What's your attitude towards those from differing backgrounds that come to Christ or that don't come to Christ? What's your attitude towards them? You have prejudices against people because they have a different skin color or because they are from a different background or because they're culturally inferior to you? Maybe, maybe even somewhat of a savage. <laughs> maybe they don't dress like you want them to dress or look like you want them to look or they have horrible habits. How do you treat those people? We don't look down on people. We love them, right? Embrace them for Christ's sake. There's no distinction. He says in verse 11, Christ is all and in all. All the racial barriers and all the social barriers and ethnic barriers and educational barriers and so on and so forth are all overcome in Christ. So we look upon believers without bias that come to Christ and without prejudice, right? I'm glad that our church is like that, that we have that mentality. That's all done away with Christ. And we look upon the people in the world that are not believers, for that matter, without prejudice. Christ is what it's all about, and Christ brings unity to all people, right? Where That unity did not exist before, by the way. He brings unity. There's people in the world who hate each other's guts because they're of a different race. Not only in America, this is all over the world, but when they come to Christ, things should be different then. There's no distinction between all those people groups. Well, our lives as believers are in stark contrast to the life we once lived, aren't they? We used to, Paul says, you used to live like this, a certain way, immoral, and you were bitter in, your, in the way you thought about people and in the things you said about people, and you lied constantly, marked your lifestyle, but now you're different in Christ. We're in Christ, and so our lives will reflect the behavior that would be honoring to Christ, right? Well, I want to close with a, a warning from Charles Spurgeon because he says it so good. And he says it in Old English, so you'll have to bear with me, but I think it's going to be to our advantage to hear it this way. It's going to help us to listen carefully. Let's close with this warning from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, <clears throat> Christian, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, wilt thou play with the fire? You're already burnt. What, when thou hast already been between the jaws of the lion, wilt thou step a second time into his den? Hast thou thou not had enough of the old serpent? Talking about Satan. Did he not poison all thy veins once? And wilt thou play upon the hole of the asp 
and put thy hand upon the viper's den a second time? He says, oh, be not so mad, so foolish. Did sin ever yield thee real pleasure? Didst thou find solid satisfaction in it? If so, go back to thine old drudgery and wear the chain again, if it delight thee. But insomuch as sin never did give thee what it promised to bestow, but it deluded thee with lies. Be not a second time snared by the old fowler. Be free, and let the remembrance of thy ancient bondage forbid thee to enter the net again. He says, in effect, remember how horrible sin was. Remember its consequences. Remember how it kept you under bondage. Remember the bad things that happened as a result. Remember the misery it led to. Remember the despair and depression it led to. And he says, Paul says to us today, or says this in Colossians 3, put those things to death, put them aside, because we're new, in, we're new creatures in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word today, tonight, and for the instruction it gives. And we are prone to sin, as the song says, Lord, uh, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And we just pray you would keep us from this by the Spirit. We pray you will enable us daily to put to death sins in our life and to live a life that would be pleasing to you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.